This is an ABC podcast. Hello there. On Radio National, this is Between the Lines. Hi, I'm Tom Switzer, and this week, the global backlash and the rearming of pacifist nations. Well, the invasion of Ukraine has clearly triggered a marked change in attitudes towards security in Europe and Asia. First Germany, and we will address Berlin's epiphany with Joe Joffe, that's later on. And now Japan, the other pacifist power since the end of World War II, and the world's third largest economy. Now recently, in response to the Ukraine crisis, former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, he called for Japan to host American nuclear weapons on its soil. So how has the war in Ukraine focused Asian minds on the security of Taiwan? Should we expect Japan to be more assertive strategically? Well, to enlighten us, I'm delighted to be joined by Yamagani Shingo. He's been Japan's ambassador to Australia for the past year, and he's also a veteran of Japan's foreign service for nearly four decades. Ambassador, welcome to ABC Radio. Thank you for having me, Tom. Now, Japan supports an aggressive set of sanctions to punish Russia for its invasion. It's blocked some Russian banks from the SWIFT global payment system, and it's announced a $100 million loan and $100 million in emergency humanitarian assistance to the people of Ukraine here. How much of a shift in Japan's rhetoric and policy is there here? Well, Tom, you know, first of all, uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine is a unilateral change of the status quo by force, which shakes the international order. This is a serious violation of international law, unacceptable outrage. So Japan condemns it in the strongest terms, and Japan, along with Australia, stands with Ukraine. So with that in mind, no, we have come up with unprecedented strong measures, uh, which includes provisions of such items as breadproof vests, helmets, winter battle dress uniform, tents, cameras, medical supplies, hygiene products, emergency ratios and generators. And Australian government also recognizes Japan's action as a welcome testimony to international solidarity in our region. No question, the the international response here this time is much stronger than its response to the Russian incursion in eastern Ukraine and the Crimean region eight years ago. But there's always a danger of Russian counter-sanctions. How worried is Japan about that fear? Well, listen, uh, there is no denying that the Japanese people and Japanese companies will be inevitably affected in a variety of ways. That said, we must make sure this kind of outrage comes with a heavy price. To act in solidarity with Ukraine people, it is imperative imperative to secure the understanding of Japanese people and Japanese corporations. Ambassador, the big issue in geopolitics before this invasion, of course, was China's rise. What lesson do you think Beijing might draw from Russia's invasion and the global backlash it's inspired? Well, frankly, as a Japanese ambassador to Australia, uh, I am not in a position to speculate here about uh, China's response. That said, I'd like to point out two aspects here. Uh, Commonality is 
you know, these an attempt uh, to unilaterally change the status quo by force, as we have witnessed it in East China Sea and South China Sea. So there is certainly a commonality between what's going on in Ukraine and what has been transpiring in the Indo-Pacific. But there is also a stark difference here. The situations are entirely different uh, between the Taiwan Strait and Ukraine. That is my take. How so? Well, you know, uh, in the case of Taiwan, yes, uh, U.S. has repeatedly expressed its concern. So has Japan and many other you know, like-minded countries. And there is a network of you know, U.S. security alliances uh, throughout Indo-Pacific. Uh, these are one of many differences. Okay. Now, Richard McGregor from the Lowy Institute, widely acclaimed as one of the world's international experts on China, past guest on this program. Now, he says that Beijing will have noticed the really strong and unified action that we've been talking about. This is the developed nation's response to the Chinese, to the Russian invasion. But McGregor warns that Beijing will also have been greatly encouraged by the fact that most countries in Asia are basically sitting on their hands. And that's perhaps why Beijing would hope for in a Taiwan conflict. Ambassador, how would you respond to Richard McGregor? Well, uh, I am not quite sure that is a correct description of the whole landscape. Look, an overwhelming number of countries, I remember 141, including 28 countries in the Asia-Pacific region voted for the UN General Assembly resolution condemning Russia. This means more Asian countries clarify their position this time compared with Russia's so-called annexation of Crimea in 2014. For example, no, look at Singapore. In, a, in an extraordinarily exceptional move, they announced you know, their intention to join with other like-minded countries and impose appropriate sanction measures on Russia. Or in the case of Indonesia, during the telephone conversation held between Japanese Prime Minister Kishida and Indonesian President Jokowi on March 8th, both countries expressed the importance of the principles of the UN Charter and the principle of territorial integrity. They also called for the immediate hold to the invasion and agreed to continue to work closely together. So in a nutshell, this is a matter of regional and global concern. Okay, so you mentioned Indonesia there and Singapore, but what about India, along with Japan, the nation you represent in Canberra, along with Australia and of course the United States, India is part of the Quad and it has a sour relationship with China. So how do you account for India's decision to abstain from a UN resolution that condemned Russia's aggression? As you know, Tom, you know, recently, you know, the court leaders had summit meeting and over there, they share their view that unilateral attempt to change the status quo by force must never happen in, in the Pacific region. And they agree that current situation makes it all the more important to further promote their efforts to realize free and open Indo-Pacific. Here, uh, I do understand each, you know, each member of the Quad has its you know, constraints and limitations. And we have to understand as friends, 
But that said, I think now is high time for us to highlight conversions rather than diversions. My guest is Japan's ambassador to Australia, Shingo Yamagami. He's a four-decade veteran of Japan's public service. Ambassador, um, many foreign policy realists in the West have said that one of the unintended consequences of NATO's tough policy towards Russia is that it's just moved Moscow closer to Beijing. They're not natural allies. How worried is Tokyo about Beijing's closer relations with Moscow? From Japanese in a perspective, in a term, you know, for the first time in history last year in October, China and Russia conducted large-scale exercise in the Sea of Japan, and afterwards, you know, their fleet circling around you know, Japan. And on top of that, in November last year, a total of four bombers, two each from China and Russia, flew over the Sea of Japan, the East China Sea, and Pacific Ocean. So China and Russia are seen as deepening uh, their military coordination and acting arbitrarily you know, against Japan. We are closely monitoring these activities with grave interest. Yes. But, I mean, uh, Japan did reach out to Putin. Um, I think uh, Japan has hosted the Russian president in Putin to address East China Sea matters. Given the global backlash to Russia now since the invasion, surely there are downsides here to China being so close to Moscow. Well, China's closeness to Russia makes it China's responsibility to urge Russia's restraint. I recall Prime Minister Scott Morrison said, no country will have a bigger impact on concluding this terrible war in Ukraine than China. I couldn't agree more. But not only that, opposition leader Anthony Albanese stated that China has failed in its special responsibility as a permanent member of the UN Security Council while offering Russia relief from sanctions. Japan, in unison with other nations, including members of the G7, continues to call on China to act responsibly. My guest is Japan's ambassador to Australia, Shingo Yamagami. Now, the former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, someone you know well, he's argued that Japan should consider a, a nuclear sharing arrangement with the US. This is similar to NATO. This story has not been getting much attention in the Australian media. Now, this is very significant in my judgment, Ambassador, because Abe is the most senior Japanese politician, in my understanding, to call for Japan to host American nuclear weapons on its soil. What's the significance of Mr. Abe's intervention? Well, first of all, you know, uh, let me be clear on this. You know, when asked, you know, uh, in the Diet, uh, Prime Minister, you know, Kishida uh, stated very clearly that, uh, you know, as far as Japanese, you know, government's policy on you know, nuclear weapons, uh, there is no change. But that said, the fact that, uh, you know, influential politicians like former Prime Minister Abe, you know, express such an opinion shows how severe the security environment we are mm. facing right now is, and why the world's attention is now on Ukraine. You know, in Japan's neighborhood, North Korea DPRK has already launched 11 ballistic missiles this year, including after Russia invaded Ukraine. This is an extraordinarily high tempo 
and repeat the pattern of new forms of missile launches. So these are the situations uh, we are facing, and I hope you know people in Australia will have a kind of understanding of the security situation facing Japan. Yeah, I think in the 2016 presidential election in the United States, it was Donald Trump who actually floated the idea of nuclear-armed Japan and South Korea. I mean, does that general idea, does it resonate with many Japanese today in the face of what you say is a deteriorating security outlook? Well, uh, Tom, let me put it this way. Uh, yes, it is true that there are various opinions you know, in Japan uh, on this issue. Given the deteriorating security situation directly confronting Japan at present, voices have been raised, for example, you know, pointing out the importance of extended deterrence from the United States. At the same time, you know, uh, one ought to point out that being the only country to have ever suffered from atomic bombs, of course, in Hiroshima and in Nagasaki, Japan is particularly convinced that the tragic consequences of the use of nuclear weapons must never be repeated. Russia's attacks on nuclear power plants and nuclear facilities are unacceptable outrages, having experienced the Fukushima nuclear power plant incident 11 years ago. Japan strongly condemns them. And we should stress that Japan uh, shelters under the US nuclear umbrella, but it insists the weapons be placed elsewhere to be continued on that front. Now, Japan, like many other US allies, uh, Ambassador, it spends less than 1% of GDP on defence. In the wake of everything we're saying here about the, the Russian invasion and the deteriorating security environment in East Asia, will Tokyo, as other US allies are expected to do, will it spend 2% of GDP in coming years? Well, first of all, you know, uh, there have been some discussions about, you know, 1% ceiling. And as far as, you know, Japanese government is concerned, uh, we have abolished 1% ceiling, you know, for defense spending uh, some time ago. And if we take a close look at, you know, facts on the ground, uh, in the combined, you know, fiscal year 2021 supplementary budget, and fiscal year 2022 budget, Japan's expenditure on security, according to NATO standards, already reaches 1.24% of GDP. But that said, yes, there is a growing awareness that we should spend more on national defense. So for example, the ruling party, Liberal Democratic Party, has come up with this election an election pledge uh, calling for a defense expenditure to GDP ratio of 2%. Uh, government plans to revise you know, its security strategy and other relevant documents later this year in order to secure enough budget to acquire the necessary defense capabilities in view of the challenging security environment. So in the next show, the serious discussions will continue. If you just tuned in, you're on Radio Nationals Between the Lines with me, Tom Switzer, and our guest is Japan's ambassador to Australia. Shingo, let's turn to Australia very briefly. The announcement of AUKUS, this is the security arrangement between Canberra, London and Washington in September, um, 
Apparently, and this is the view of a lot of the critics of AUKUS, it upset the sensibilities of some countries in East Asia, particularly Southeast Asia, that it was seen as part of the Anglosphere and it wasn't taking into account China's sensibilities. What's the general view in Japan about AUKUS? Ambassador. First of all, Tom, you know, thank you for asking that very, very important question because Japan is one of the first countries to have clearly you know, expressed its support for the creation of AUKUS. Why? Because we believe this is necessary, this is indispensable in terms of increasing deterrence in the Indo-Pacific region. As I have repeatedly you know, explained you know, today, there have been a number of you know, security challenges appearing you know, uh, in this region. So the name of the game here is you know, deterrence. We have to increase it. In that regard, you know, this AUKUS is going to play a crucial role. And also, you know, when it comes to response from our friends and colleagues in Southeast Asia, I have a different take. And uh, I've been talking to a number of Southeast Asian ambassadors, and many of them are fully aware of the need to increase deterrence. Finally, Ambassador, you've been in Australia for less than a year. It's been tough given the pandemic and the lockdowns. How have you felt about uh, your time in Australia, especially given that the uh, Australian government back in 2016 rejected Japan's uh, submarine bid? Well, uh, you know, my wife, you know, Kaoru, and uh, I have been enjoying every single moment of our time in Australia. Actually, this is an assignment we have long wanted, and now you know, our dreams are coming true. And you mentioned about submarine. Yes, it's a better memory, you know, six years ago. But, you know, I think Australian friends are fully aware that Japan is not the kind of country to dwell on the past grievances. We have decided to move on and we have been successful in promoting special strategic partnership between Japan and Australia. And as Japanese ambassador, I am very, very proud of our accomplishments. Well, Ambassador, it's a pleasure to have you on ABC Radio. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me, Tom. That was Shingo Yamagami, Japan's ambassador to Australia. On Radio National, this is Between the Lines. I'm Tom Switzer, and up next... Big changes in the world's other pacifist power, Germany. Well, as we just heard, Vladimir Putin's bloody assault on Ukraine, that's shaken things up in Japan's defence circles. And the invasion has also produced an epiphany in German foreign policy circles. And the changes, well, they've come with breathtaking speed, haven't they? You just think about Berlin's new moves. It's halted the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline. It's authorised the construction of two new liquefied natural gas terminals and increased investments in coal and gas reserves. It's ended the ban on lethal weapons exports to Ukraine. It's accepted financial sanctions on Russia. And it's begun to rearm the German defence budget to 2% of GDP, as, by the way, all NATO members are supposed to do. 
So all this amounts to a radical overhaul of German defence and energy policy thinking. But will this turnabout last? Joseph Joffe is one of Germany's most prominent intellectuals and journalists. These days he teaches international politics at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. Joe, welcome back to Between the Lines. Yes, thank you. I love it. Now, Germany has long had a pacifist foreign policy. You don't confront, don't provoke Russia. How do you account for that stance, the fact that it lasted for so long? Yes, I mean, I mean the logic of German, German Ostpolitik, if you wish, was, uh, you know, let interdependence do its blissful work, trade, invest, and you, we will tame and socialize the, the Russian bear. But this goes back much, much further into the past when uh, Bismarck, uh, you know, Germany's first unifier, proclaimed his iron rule, quote, never cut the link to St. Petersburg. So for Germany, you know, post-war Germany, the rule was, of course, the law was, we are in and off the West, but not always with the West. So balance and mediate, stay on the Kremlin's good side. After all, Russia is so near and America is so far. Not a very heroic stance, but it was rational, especially after the Soviet Union collapsed 30 years ago and the last Russian soldier left Central Europe. So Germany, by the way, and every, so did everybody else, cashed in on its peace dividends, cutting the army down to one-third and letting the rest rot away. But, you know, Germany, as long as security was assured, did well with what it calls, celebrates as the culture of reticence. Well, and, and yet today, you know, it's obviously widely believed that all this has been changed utterly by the Ukraine crisis. And, and really the shift in German public sentiment has been dramatic and sudden. Here's Andrea Kluth. He's a Berlin-based Bloomberg columnist. Here he is reflecting the new conventional wisdom. The entire centre, the entire mainstream of German politics just shifted on a dime. There's, that's slightly worrying too, that that can happen so fast. The entire mainstream is now has turned around completely in its view of Russia. That's Andrea Kluth, a Berlin-based Bloomberg columnist on RN Saturday Extra. Joe Joffe. Why this amazing transformation, which has surprised me as it has surprised you? Well, the Americans are swinging back. American security is not so solid anymore because both Obama and Trump had pulled troops out of Europe and the bear is next door. Uh, and they ask themselves, when, it, when is it the turn of the Baltics and the Poles? Who, which are our deterrence ring of deter, outer deterrence ring? Now, let me say something which has nothing to do with, with political science. Don't forget television, plus the social media. Those horrifying pictures of burning cities and escaping Ukrainians who are being bombed from, from the air. The point is, the moral of this tale is, a clip is worth more than a thousand words. I think this helps to explain fear and images, help to explain this amazing transformation. Okay, but is it fair to say that the Russian invasion of Ukraine has had the same effect on Germany that, say, Germany's invasion of Poland in 1939 had on England? 
Yes, I mean, I think the the, <clears throat> the analogy is, is well taken. I mean, the way the Brits in the interwar period behaved like the Germans, you know, since the dawn of Ostpolitik, which was, you know, cooperation over confrontation. And among the Brits, there was also this sense that Herr Hitler, as they called him, had at least some points in his favor, which was this kind of vindictive Versailles settlement, and which had cut off East Prussia and Danzig from, from the German homeland, and he wanted the corridor. That made all of this made some sense. And they honestly believed that by propitiating Germany, they could reintegrate him it into the into the into the global or into the European system. So it in both cases, and that's why I like the analogy, the rude awakening, you know, practically overnight, uh, turned <clears throat> turned the tide. I mean, suddenly the Germans were conquering Poland, and suddenly the the Russians are behaving in ways that are truly threatening, and you don't know where is he going to stop. When is he going to stop? So, and that, so I like the comparison. Yes, but you, you've written in the Wall Street Journal just recently, or you've raised the question, how long will German revulsion at Russia last? And you say, realism suggests caution. And I think about Germany's massive welfare state, of course, Berlin's priorities still in fighting the pandemic. So ask you, how long will German revulsion at Russia last? Ordinary mortals like me are not given you know, the gift of prophecy. Uh, you uh, you already outlined some of the some of the shoals here that we have to navigate. In most general terms, a perfect welfare state like Germany, and so are many other Western countries, is not likely to turn overnight into a warfare state. And I'm not even sure that uh, almost doubling defense spending in terms of GDP will actually come about. But, um, and you know, you don't want to predict anything while we are in the midst of carnage. But I, I will assume that, that the revulsion will continue as Putin is flattening Ukrainian cities and bombing, uh, bombing people who are civilians who, are, who want to flee the, the battlefield. Uh, and I want to repeat myself. I said, in democracies, unmitigated horror is more powerful than the logic of diplomatic maneuvering on the part of Germany or the West as a whole. But assume that, you know, hope against hope, Putin finally grasps that he has miscalculated wildly by not foreseeing how the entire West, entire West, even eternally neutral Switzerland, will hit back with biting sanctions. Why would he assume that we would suddenly deliver you know, sophisticated military materiel when we refused arms to Ukraine for the last 10 years? Yes. Uh, only a few weeks ago. So, you know, he might come to his senses, but nothing so far suggests this. And, it's, and instead, by the way, as we speak, he's doubling down and raising the stakes. So here's my, here's my prediction for the time we speak again next year. If he continues in these 
brutal, cruel ways, he will not earn appeasement in Germany and the rest of Europe. It is a trap of his own making that Putin has stepped in. It's a fascinating period in world history. I mean, about 30 years ago, our mutual friend, the Australian conservative realist Owen Harries, wrote a foreign affairs essay called The Collapse of the West. And his argument, Joe, in case you've forgotten, was that in the absence of a life-threatening, overtly hostile East, then the geopolitical case for a united West, that ceased to exist. But Harry's also warned that NATO expansion, and he was making these arguments in the mid-1990s, that could provoke a humiliated and angry Russia in the way that a, a cornered, wounded animal can be dangerous. So the question here is, has Putin's invasion of Ukraine its not just shifted the balance of power, possibly against Europe, but more importantly, has it helped reunify the West? Joe Joffe. I don't buy the theory that we did it to ourselves. How are we threatening? How were we threatening the Russians? We had about four battalions, 4,500 4, people uh, stationed along the, the, the eastern edge of NATO. That was not a warfighting machine, nor did we overtly threaten anybody. Uh, and Russia still has 11 time zones. So it's a bit like the wolf, you know, in the, in the, in the fable, the wolf who blames, blames the, 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 the lamb for his own aggression. Um, I don't buy that. That's, that's a kind of, it's, it's, it's not a, it's a transparent and not very credible story. I think he has more, more bigger fish to fry. He wants, somebody wants to reconstitute the Soviet Empire. But what about the question that it helps reunify the West? Because the West has been deeply divided. We saw that during the lead up to the Iraq invasion. Has the Putin invasion of, of Ukraine helped reunify the West? Absolutely. You're absolutely right. I'm amazed. I wouldn't have predicted it, given the way the West behaved in, in, in years and decades past. But, you know, as that, 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 that English uh, saying has it, nothing concentrates the mind more sharply than the prospect of a hanging two weeks from now. So that's how international politics works. You mount a threat, you generate resistance and counterbalancing. And that's good. That's important. The only thing that will bring him to his senses. My guest is one of Germany's most prominent intellectuals and journalists, Joseph Joffe. He's a fellow at Stanford's Hoover Institution. Joe, let's turn to climate and energy. Germany's over-dependence on Russian fossil fuels, that's been well documented. We all know it's been a dangerous vulnerability. So what's the significance of Berlin's decision to stockpile coal and gas reserves and build new terminals to import LNG, liquefied natural gas, from nations other than Russia. Let me make a caddy footnote here. Both the Germans refused to embargo Soviet gas, and the United States refuses to embargo Soviet, I mean, Russian oil. So um, nobody really wants to freeze uh, in order to save to save Ukraine. That said, I think there's a lot of things both countries could do. You just mentioned them. I mean, suddenly, Germany is going to have not only one, but two LNG terminals. Would have sunk. Uh, it is now 
wants to maintain coal-fired energy, wow, I thought we were going to save the planet <laughs> and get, get rid of, get rid of um, uh, coal by 2038. What about nuclear power plants? The last three still standing are supposed to be decommissioned at the end of this year. Now, even good people like, you know, the social democratic left is, is, is mulling, keeping these things going. So <clears throat> the, the point here is uh, there's on one hand the kind of national egotism I just mentioned, the part of the U.S. and, and the Germans. On the other hand, I think they're drawing the right lessons. And, so, and, as, and above, above all, Germany, to, to go back to the examples you use. Uh, that will reduce interdependence, and more importantly, it will reduce being being exploited by Russian ex uh, expansion. Yeah, will, 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 will Germany cut itself completely off Russian gas? Because you've posed the question in the international media, will Germany really shiver for Kiev next winter? You know, the Ger Germany's energy connection to, to Russia is now 50 years old. When the first, in 1970, the first pipeline was laid down, it's a vast network uh, of pipelines crisscrossing Europe. And uh, I mean, not only Germany, but the rest too, except France, have, have gotten hooked. And as you know, it takes quite a long time in a, in a clinic before you can get rid of your addiction. But I think it's <laughs> taking the right steps. I would assume that Biden will also make it easier to go back to ex ex exploiting oil and gas in the United States. I think the lesson it has sunk in. And mm. in the longer run, I don't know how long it is, our excruciating dependence on Russian goodwill will decline. And this is, this is the right thing to do. Okay, but let me push back here. I mean, you are, you've distinguished yourself over the last few decades as not just a leading authority on German politics and German foreign policy. You're also widely regarded as a leading authority on US foreign policy, been published in Commentary Magazine, The National Interest, Foreign Affairs, The American Interest, Foreign Policy, uh, the, the, you know, The New York Times, The Washington Post, you name it. You're the guru. You're the, you're the man, Joe. Now, listen, let me put this to you. Are you concerned that in an increasingly multipolar world, it's no, longer, it's no longer unipolar, are you concerned that one of the consequences of all this, that of the West's response, that we're pushing Russia even closer to China, which frankly is the main strategic competitor to the United States? How is that a yes. good thing in the long term? This is, um, this is a very good question. My general answer is, Russia and China, which share, I don't know, 4,000 kilometer border, are natural rivals. And so the friendship has limits. Right now, Russia and China are kind of sidling up to each other. But please note the ambivalence on the part of Beijing. Uh, they don't really want to rupture uh, the, the American relationship because that spells integration of the global trading and investment network and uh, Chinese authoritarianism is much more conscious of the economic costs of going up against the West and, and, and the US than the Russians are, which yeah, Russia is essentially a third world country living off natural resources. 
China by now is fully integrated into the global system. So I expect though <clears throat> these facts, these economic facts, to limit the collusion on their part, plus what I call the natural rivalry of these two very, very big powers. Yeah. Joe, as always, it's great to have you on ABC Radio. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you. That's Joe Joffe, a longtime publisher, editor of leading weekly German newspaper, Die Zeit, and he teaches international politics at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies in Washington. Well, in Western Australia in 1921, Edith Cowan becomes Australia's first female parliamentarian. Yet it's not until 1943 that Enid Lyons and Dorothy Tangy are elected to federal parliament. But here's a question. When did a woman first become a member of cabinet and a minister with responsibilities for a portfolio? Well, in the UK, it was 1929, and in the US, it was 1933. But here in Australia, we had to wait a while. When did a woman first become a minister? Was it the 50s? The 60s? How about the 1970s? And no, it wasn't during a Gough Whitlam government. In fact, it was in 1976 when Malcolm Fraser appoints Margaret Guilfoyle as the Minister for Social Security. She later, as we'll learn, took on key economic and finance ministries. Now, to discuss the life and the career of Margaret Guilfoyle, I welcome her biographer, Anne Henderson, to the program. Now, Anne Henderson is the Deputy Director of the Sydney Institute. Her previous books include Enid Lyons, Leading Lady to a Nation, Joseph Lyons, The People's Prime Minister, and Menzies at War. And her latest work on Margaret Guilfoyle is part of the Australian Biographical Monographs. It's, it's a series published by Connor Court in Brisbane. Hello, Anne. Great to have you on Between the Lines. Hi, Tom. I believe this is the first uh, book, really, of Margaret Guilfoyle uh, from 1926 to 2020. She died in November 2020. Liberal senator from Victoria from 71 to 87. Why do you think she's been overlooked until now? Oh, look, she's not so much overlooked by those who study women's, you know, achievements, but she was a most remarkable minister and member of parliament, not like a lot of the blokes who like to sort of self-promote. She was very much the modest, efficient, uh, exemplary uh, manager, exemplary MP, but her tendency was not to sort of push her barrow. And, you know, we remember people who were even buffoons of MPs and all that stuff simply because they were kind of jocular or made trouble or started a party that didn't go very far. But Margaret did the big things and she did them with an enormous amount of modesty and was very pragmatic and very much a believer in um, the capability that you were given and what you did with it and the responsibility that you owed people by using that. And is that all why she was drawn to politics but also the Liberal Party? Well, funnily enough, she didn't come up with a very political family, although they were very much Britishers. They, her father from Northern Ireland took them to Australia in the 20s. He died when she was 10. Her mother brought her up in Fairfield, Melbourne, uh, with her two siblings um, with, you know, limited finances. And they were very strong Presbyterians. They had a very active life in the Presbyterian Church. The only party of any interest in that particular suburb of Melbourne would have been the Labor Party. There were no 
conservative parties would have been the United Australia Party in those days. But when she met and eventually married uh, Stan Guilfoyle after the war and um, they got together doing accountancy classes at night, it was his mother who was the political one and she'd signed him up during the war when he was flying for the RAAF to the New Liberal Party, um, oh, sorry, the UAP, and then when the New Liberal mm-hmm. Party started, mm-hmm. she, she pushed him into it and um, very political. So Stan then was political and he was very involved with the New Young Liberal Party and Margaret got involved and as a married couple, they were very staunch members of the South Camberwell branch of the Liberal Party in the 1950s. Okay, now the Liberal Party um, had a rule here, 50-50. a 50-50 rule for Liberal Party positions in Victoria. What was that and how helpful was it for women like Margaret Guilfoyle? Well, terrifically, and I often say that... Um, that's one of the advantages of the Labor Party, that they have such a bureaucratic structure that a lot of, and, and they've got the unions and all of that, that, that if women want to, they can move through the ranks. Victoria, the Victorian division of the Liberal Party had this uh, remarkable uh, visionary idea that they would have 50% of um, members of the, that is the administration of the party and 50% of those positions would be women. So it was a long time before women actually got seats, uh, in a sense, in mm. any great number, but it did give people like Margaret Guilfoyle a great chance to get familiar with the idea of, oh, whether it was meetings or bringing communities together, addressing functions, you know, the, the usual stuff that would go into making you a good MP. And through that she became president of the women's section of the Victorian Division and when Ivy Wedgwood retired in 1970, she had to... She was sort of pushed to to have a go. So she enters Parliament in July 71, but let's jump ahead to 1975, the year of the dismissal. Now, Margaret Guilfoyle, she's she's really in the thick of it, isn't she, Anne? She's blocking supply in the Senate to the Whitlam government. I mean, how did she remember those times and her actions? Well, she's um, various um, comments. She even made a comment to me about on the day when she passed um, Jim McCullough after the dismissal had happened at um, Government House, uh, she, he'd, he'd said to her, is it just off or are we all gone? And she said, oh, you're all gone. So it, the impression was <laughs> she, she got the impression that, you know, Whitlam hadn't even told his, his ministry um, he'd gone home for lunch. But she was a very strong supporter of the, the move that Fraser determined, being the uh, leader, that they would block supply. And I've quoted a section where she makes a very strong speech saying that they have a right to bring down, you know, to bring down this government because this is a government that has failed financially and it needs to be replaced. So, but it was a very fraught time because some, a couple of the senators w- were very worried about the blocking of supply and um, they had to hold the, hold the ranks. And she singled out by Reg Withers, who was the leader in the Senate, as being one of those who kept the troops together. On Between the Lines, my guest is Anne Henderson, and we're talking about her biography of Margaret Guilfoyle. Now, Fraser wins the 75 election, massive landslide. Does it again, of course, two years later in 77, another massive landslide. Margaret then becomes the first woman to to hold a cabinet portfolio, but Anne, it's not just any government department she's the minister for, is it? No, it's, look, it's troubled times. And as Stuart Henderson said long ago, Fraser promised what was almost impossible to deliver. The expectations were too great. Remember, this was a time of high unemployment and high inflation. Um, mm-hmm. The crisis of the Stagflation, stagflation. Oh, yeah, terrible stagflation. times. 
I remember teaching senior politics students this and they, one Labor, young Labor guy came and said to me, there's no such thing, you can't possibly have inflation and unemployment. I said, you bet you can. <laughs> <laughs> You've got a lot but to what learn. what a time anyway. to be the Minister for Social Security, eh? Yeah. Well, there you go. So there were moves in the department. Of course, Jim Keynes as Treasurer had been disgraceful and I spoke to a number of top people who became top bureaucrats and worked with Margaret and the, the amazing thing is that Margaret didn't work against the bureaucracy at a troubled time. She worked with them and she won their confidence and many of them saw her as an outstanding minister. But what they had to try and do, what she wanted to do, was help the needy because in a time of inflation that's, you know, you've got a lot of people either on the dole or managing on pensions which aren't paying the bills, whatever. They'd been developing an idea that child endowment and then tax tax rebates for those, uh, for children, for employed people, could be all managed together into a family allowance. Now, the benefit of that was that you would take the money from usually reasonably well-earned, high-earning men who usually got the tax deduction and you'd put it, give it to the mothers. And so the mothers would have a much better uh, family allowance to look after the children, which is what it was meant to do. And this then became her first major reform, which what happened was that Margaret Guilfoyle with the Treasurer and whatever, and she didn't get on very well with Phil Lynch, who was the Treasurer then, because he was sort of trying to cut down the costs. But Margaret Guilfoyle was a master, master of tactics. Because Fraser had won such a huge majority, he had a huge majority in the Senate too. He had a majority in the Senate, which, of course, Prime Ministers would die for now. And she would use little rebellions in the Senate against decisions by the Cabinet, the, uh, the um, Treasurer, whatever, to try and cut back on the Social Security Bill, which was a huge bill. It's always been one of the biggest um, costs of government. And she managed to get endlessly right through to she became Finance Minister, she managed to get the money she wanted for the um, Social security payments she wanted to pay. And um, there was even one occasion where before the 79 um, budget and uh, they had a discussion in, in, uh, in Cabinet and she got Fraser to agree that they wouldn't cut any of the $7 billion for Social Security. He was going off to somewhere and at the airport he didn't tell the press that that's the decision. So what did she do? She sent out a press, press release that that was the decision they'd made in Cabinet. She got the $7 billion. Okay, so she, she, she defends she her turf. She very good at that. She defends her turf when it comes to pensioners and families. We get that. 1980, of course, she moves to uh, another key portfolio, which you just mentioned, finance, terrible economic conditions in the 80s. Now, Fraser is Prime Minister. He needs to rein in spending and he creates a ministerial review of what the Commonwealth functions. It's better known as the Razor Gang. This is a key member of that group, Margaret. What was she up against? She then, by then, I think uh, Howard had come to be treasurer. I talked to John Howard. And John Howard said that the uh, Razor Gang was a damp squid. Squid, and <laughs> she herself saw the irony of being the biggest spender being moved to the financial uh, spot because then she had to check everybody's budgets. And she said in one of her talks that there is no minister. There, this was the days when they talked about wets and dries. Wets wanted to spend, dries wanted mm -hmm. to cut back. Mm -hmm. uh, she said no minister was ever dry when it came to the budget. They were all wets. They all wanted as much money as they could get. So what she became is kind of gatekeeper. And she used the finance department bureaucrats very cleverly. 
they would say to her, just tell them it's already been considered. We've had that one before. It's not going to get anywhere. Just forget it. Go away. And she said she was able by using the bureaucracy that way to to talk some of the ministers out of some of the money that they wanted spent because it was never going to get up and it was why would they waste their time trying to argue it? Hawke defeats Fraser in 83. She's out of power. And, in fact, I think now's as good a time as any is to remember that her time in Parliament from, what, 71 to 83, that dovetails nicely with the um, the distinguished parliamentary career of Neville Bonner, the first Aboriginal uh, parliamentarian, mm. uh, which is an interest, another Liberal as well, and we did a segment on Neville Bonner last year to mark the 50th, the 50th anniversary mm. of his election to Parliament. Now, um, she stays on as a shadow spokesperson for finance and taxation, but then she retires in 1987, yes. um, and she's still active behind the scenes in politics. She encourages women into political careers in the Liberal Party. Final question, the legacy of Margaret Guilfoyle. How should we remember her, Anne? Well, I think... In this mad age of self-promotion where someone can turn themselves into an influencer just because of something bad that's happened to them and they've turned themselves into a folk hero. And, 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 and the MPs that we've seen in government today who seem to think that they can stand up to their own party as if they had no, they, they could have got there without the party behind them. Um, she tells you what it's, what's important about being um, in government and why you're there. Um, Josh Frydenberg gave a marvellous um, obituary comment to her in Parliament and he said of her she was meticulous, authoritative, intellectually rigorous, calm, confident and no-nonsense, all true. He then added she knew what she believed but understood why. And that kind of faith and commitment and also her, she always believed in service and she didn't see it as her, you know, herself. She saw it as part of a team. And I think she's got a message right now for this notion that we can all go independent and do our own thing, that she never forgot why she was there. She never forgot what she was wanted to do, the responsibility she had and where she could, um, and the reason that she got there, which was the party. So she was a party loyalist right through. Now, she could have been the party president, um, I can't remember the year, but it was at a time when Malcolm Fraser had retired and he wanted he wanted to grab the spot. So she said, well, he's, you know, he used to be the Prime Minister and I'm not going to cause party division, I'll step aside. Everyone thought she should be the party president. It turned out that he didn't have the numbers and Tony Staley got the, got the position. But that was Margaret. She wouldn't make a fuss, she wouldn't, in the sense that she wouldn't wreck the party unity just for her own career. I think we could do an awful lot more in that regard right now. Indeed, indeed. Now, the book is called Margaret Guilfoyle. It's part of the Australian Biographical Monograph series. It's published by Connor Court. Anne, thanks so much for being on ABC's RN. Thanks, Tom. Anne Henderson, Deputy Director of the Sydney Institute. Finally, allow me to pay tribute to Labor Senator Kimberly Kitching, who died this week at age 52. 
Now, I liked and admired Kimberley because, among other things, she was a consequential figure in the ALP, a leading critic of the People's Republic of China who supported policies that hedge against Beijing's attempts to interfere in our national sovereignty. Kimberley was also a delightful company and a sound thinker, as our last exchange on this program in October demonstrated. Here's Kimberley on the AUKUS agreement. This was announced by the US, British and Australian leaders. When I saw the press conference that morning, I thought it was fantastic. And the reason is, it's because it's a recommitment to our values. We know the Indo-Pacific is probably going to be the region of strategic competition for the next era, you know, and it's clear I think that we'll have to contribute more to our own security. I think the unipolar world that existed post-Soviet Union uh, has gone. That's the Francis Fukuyama thesis. I think that's finished. And I think we'll have to commit to our own own security and to ensure our own sovereignty. That's Victorian Labor Senator Kimberley Kitching on this program last October. RIP Kimberley. Well, that's it for the show for another week. And remember, if you'd like to hear past episodes, including last week's discussions with prominent commentators on the Ukraine crisis, Kishore Mabulbani from Singapore and Mary Dejeski from London, just go to abc.net.au slash rn and follow the prompts to Between the Lines. Or, of course, just download the show's podcast on the ABC's Listen app. This is Tom Switzer from Radio National. Always great having your company. Thanks for listening. Listening.